listening to episode 61 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lamberth. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. We tend to think that the gospel is something that only unbelievers need. Those who don't have a relationship with Jesus right now or haven't committed their lives to following him. But in reality, if the gospel is the good news, shouldn't the good news be good news for those of us who've already accepted it as well? And that's why I'm excited for you guys to hear this message by our very own Chris Lamberth. It's probably one of the best presentations of why the gospel is good news, not just to those who aren't following Jesus or who haven't made discipleship a lifestyle, but for those of us who have and are, have been following Christ maybe for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And Chris's story at the beginning of this message, I think, drives home the very important fact that the gospel applies not only to us before we adopt a lifestyle of discipleship, but after and even into the rest of our lives, the end of our lives, in fact. And so that's why I'm so excited for you guys to hear this message by our very own Chris Lamberth. And I hope that it's something that impacts you and helps you to see the gospel as something more than just the entry or the gateway into the kingdom of God. The gospel, the good news, really is everything when it comes to living a lifestyle of discipleship. How many times have you been converted? This may seem like an odd question at first, or maybe it conjures up images of your childhood when you would respond to every altar call going forward for salvation. But I don't mean how many times have you prayed the sinner's prayer or asked Jesus into your heart. I truly do mean conversions. How many times have you been converted from your worldly way of thinking into a way of thinking that's more consistent with the way of the kingdom of God? To be honest, if I think about my own life, I can't really come up with an answer. But maybe if I ask it this way, what is the most valuable lesson you've ever learned in the Christian life? This is one of my favorite questions to ask guests on the podcast. And I usually give them a little bit of an explanation to give them time to answer. That explanation goes something like this. Josh and I have found that as we walk with Jesus, we have moments of clarity revealed through the Spirit or encounters with Him that change the way we see the world. Once we have these realizations, we can never go back to seeing the world in the same way that we did before. And as a result, our lives are changed forever. I love asking this question because in less than a minute, a person can look through their entire life in Christ and latch on to a few moments of profound change that the Spirit used to radically transform them further into the image of Christ. And this idea of continued conversions has come up again and again on the podcast as we've talked to different guests. Christians from all different backgrounds and traditions recognize that as they genuinely seek to follow Christ, they are continually converted from their old way of thinking and into a new way of thinking to be more like Christ himself. And the good news is that these conversions can happen again and again, even on the same idea, especially ideas like grace and how great God's love is for us. These concepts are too great for us to grasp all at once. And so God continues to meet us at moments in our life when we most need to see them again in a new way. 
We may not have a new language to articulate exactly what kind of change took place in us, but we are definitely different because of it. In fact, it can seem funny to those around us whom we tell. We sound like infants in the faith when we run to our friends and exclaim that, you know, we were on a walk yesterday afternoon and God's presence so overtook us that we just realized how much God loves us. We say, God loves us. Can you believe it? And they kind of look at you like, uh, yeah, of course he does. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? These are pretty basic things in the faith, but we just lack the language to really convey the transformation that has taken place in our heart as God has revealed to us afresh how much he truly loves us. You see, we often think of things like the gospel or conversion as things non-Christians need. But as I've gotten older, especially after having kids and now after having talked to dozens of disciples on the podcast, I'm convinced we never lose our need to hear the gospel and be converted by it. So today, I'd like to share with you the good news of the gospel and a few of the conversions that I've experienced over the last few years. For some of you, this won't be anything new. For others, you, like me, may need to experience a conversion. But I hope that no matter which group you're in, you will come away with the same response I have. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever had one of those random encounters that seem meaningless in the moment, but end up sticking with you for years and ultimately end up changing your life? When I was a high school senior one Wednesday night after church, a friend approached me and asked a question. We had just had an incredible worship service. Technically, service had been over for probably an hour, but that wasn't unusual for us as many of us lingered around the altars, pressing into God, searching for more of his presence. But as things were starting to wind down, my friend grabbed me as we were getting ready to walk out. He said, hey, Chris, can I talk to you real quick? Of course, I replied. So we quickly sat down on the front row, just a few steps away from the door, and he stopped and he looked me in the face and he asked, Chris, how can I grow closer to God? I have such a hunger and a passion to know him more, but I feel stuck. I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying constantly every day. I just can't seem to get closer to him. Now, this seems like it should have been a simple enough question. After all, I had grown up in the church and uh, had taken up somewhat of a student leadership role in my youth group. I was involved in leading small groups. I volunteered at the church constantly and was involved in just about every ministry the youth group had to offer. I seemed like an obvious candidate for this question. But what my friend didn't know at the time is that I was struggling with the exact same question. You see, in my youth group, we had one of those expectations that if you wanted to be really spiritual, you prayed for at least an hour a day. Now, this expectation didn't come from our youth pastor or the youth sponsors necessarily. It came from us, the students. 
We were a bunch of teenagers who were hungry for the presence of God, and we regularly enjoyed just getting together at the church or at someone's house to simply pray and seek God. So for many of us, spending an hour a day in prayer wasn't actually unusual. I remember at one point I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning just so I could read my Bible and get in my hour of prayer time before heading off to school. But over time, that dedication waned a little bit. I no longer woke up at 4.30. It became later and later. Now, I was still hungry for God's presence. My prayer time just didn't seem to yield the same results they once did. I felt stuck in my walk with God, and I didn't know how to move forward. So I looked my friend in the eyes, smiled, and said emphatically, That's it, man. You've just got to keep pressing in even harder. Just keep reading and praying. I'll never forget his facial expression as he responded to my sage advice. I like to think it's probably the same look that the rich young ruler had as he walked away from Jesus that day, realizing his situation was hopeless. Or perhaps I was mistaken and instead saw in his face the projection of the shame and hopelessness I felt in my heart. Whatever it was, I knew I never wanted to be caught in that situation again. I never wanted to have someone ask me how they can follow Christ more closely and be at a loss for how to help them. I wanted to follow Christ more closely in my own personal life and be able to help others do the same as well. Fast forward several months and I found myself at CBC where an entirely new world had opened up to me. There at Bible college, I was learning things about the Bible and ways to grow spiritually that I'd never learned before. All of a sudden, a whole new depth and intimacy with God was opened up to me. But one class in particular changed my life forever. A theology class that was taught by a professor that I had avoided because he had a reputation for being a little bit more difficult than many of the other professors. But this class was unavoidable. So I gritted my teeth and signed up. But as I sat in this systematic theology two class with Professor Andre Snavely, I heard things about Jesus and his life like I'd never heard before. My biblical studies and uh, biblical language classes at Central Bible College had taught me how to read and study the Bible. But studying theology with Dr. Snavely showed me how to connect the dots and how to think about the story of Scripture in a way that I didn't know was possible. Now, I'm not really sure when this exactly took place. And as many of you know, Dr. Snavely has been on the podcast several times before. But I had the pleasure of working with him for several years at Globe University. And over those years, we would have constant conversations, you know, uh, crowded around the proverbial uh, water cooler or coffee pot in our case most of the time. And this is to say nothing of the many other conversations that I've had with many other people like uh, Josh and Kevin, who was also on the podcast. But somewhere along the way, I came to learn what I now consider to be the most valuable lesson I've ever learned in the Christian life. The way in which Jesus lived his life actually has meaning for the way I live mine. You see, before this realization, I just thought that Jesus did the extraordinary things he did because he was God. His teachings had value for me, but I should learn to listen to them and apply them to my life as best I can. But I couldn't be expected to actually live the way he lived. And when I say extraordinary, I'm not talking about the miracles he did, although they would be part of it. 
I'm really referring to the way in which he loved his enemies, how he answered questions and how he retreated from the multitudes and crowds and avoided being propped up as this conquering Messiah so he could be alone in prayer with God. These are just three examples in a long list I could give. And yet I can confidently say that everything that Jesus did, I would naturally do the opposite. I think Dr. Snavely summarizes it best when he says that it was, in fact, the way that Jesus lived his life that led to the kind of death he died on the cross. The two are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. So I think this plays itself out in two key areas. Number one, his reliance on the Spirit as he obediently did everything he saw his Father doing. And two, the way he lived his obedient life that ultimately led to his death on the cross. More than just taking what Jesus said and trying to apply it to my life in any way I see fit, I must obey his teachings and keep his law in the way that he himself did. For this is what it means to be his disciple and to learn from him. His teachings are not like those of a seminar presentation. They do not constitute a list of good ideas that are left for me to mull over and apply as I see fit. We often treat his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in this way. Instead, his way of life must become a way of life for me. Josh and I have dubbed this way of life a lifestyle of discipleship. And it has been my goal ever since to cultivate this kind of life in Christ. One word is my lifestyle to follow him in the same manner in which he lived his life. Now, I feel that at this point I must uh, give a disclaimer. I don't really think I should uh, be making this video telling you about the way in which Jesus lived his life and how to create a lifestyle of discipleship. I feel like a fraud. First off, I still feel completely inadequate to give anyone any instruction on how to follow Christ. And second, I don't feel like I'm measuring up to this call to follow him in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. I feel like a failure right now in this particular phase of my life. But even if I look at it at times when I'm actually doing my best, I still fall woefully short of God's standards. And yet, here's the good news. God, by his grace and mercy, continues to work in my life. I recently, within the last year, underwent another conversion. And like a newborn Christian, this one still makes me giddy. This one is the reason I'm able to uh, make this video here before you today. Ever since I realized that the way in which Jesus lived his life affects the way I should live mine, the Sermon on the Mount has held a special place in my heart. It is at the same time held up as one of the great moralistic teachings the world has ever known, even by secular philosophers and teachers of other religions. But it is also the detailed teachings about what life in the kingdom of God should look like. The Sermon on the Mount serves as a guidebook, a kind of instruction manual on what it looks like to live in this new kingdom. This is what it means to live the good life, the flourishing life. He is presenting the law of God as the instruction that will guide God's people as they are called out of this world and into God's kingdom rule. He is showing us the new way of life that constitutes the way of God's flourishing kingdom. And under this new kingdom, not only do people not kill each other, they don't even wish ill on one another. 
Not only will they comply when asked to help them out and carry their burden one mile, but they will joyfully contribute and go the second mile just because they genuinely desire the well-being of the one who asks. But if you had asked me a little over a year ago what I thought Jesus was saying in Matthew 5 when he presented the Beatitudes, I would have given you a very different answer from the one I'm about to give you right now. You see, the Beatitudes present an interesting challenge to translators and commentators of Matthew 5. There are certain words used here in the Greek that uh, make it a little difficult. The word that we translate as blessing, for instance, is uh, makarios in the Greek. And this word makarios can be interpreted in several different ways. First, most agree that makarios does mean blessing or blessedness. It can also be translated as happy, fortunate, or privileged. But those don't quite get at the context of what Jesus is saying here. Blessed does a decent enough job at conveying in English the idea here. But, like all heavenly matters, we lack the language to accurately convey their true meaning. Think about how many ways Jesus tries to describe the kingdom of God. And we still don't quite understand him. But the real problem with the Beatitudes comes when we start talking about verb tenses. I know, it's exciting, isn't it? Essentially, the issue boils down to when someone is blessed. Are they blessed now in the original state Jesus addressed, like poor in spirit, for example? Or are they blessed because one day in the future, when the kingdom of heaven has come in its fullness, they will receive it? And this isn't a trivial issue. Answering the question helps us understand why this person is blessed in the first place. If we continue with the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's obvious that having or being part of the kingdom of heaven is a good thing. Those who have that kingdom certainly are blessed. But the problem is that based on the Greek, blessed is a present tense verb stating the condition of those who are poor in spirit, which means that the poor in spirit are in fact blessed right now in the present moment. This blessing isn't something that will take place in the future during the eschaton when Christ returns. They aren't blessed because God will reward their patience and steadfastness uh, or their endurance for waiting patiently in their current condition. They are blessed right now as they hear Jesus speaking to them. But being poor in spirit doesn't seem to be a blessed state, at least not one most of us would want. Perhaps we can get on board with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but being poor in spirit? Well, thank you. On top of that, being poor in spirit literally does mean a person who is downtrodden and in a terrible condition or state of being. This isn't something that should be desirable, even though many of us today try to spin this concept as one that is a desirable position. A lot of commentators like to try and make this out to be humble-minded. And there is a lesson on humility that can be learned to this, and we'll get to that in a minute. But being poor in spirit is not an ideal state or condition to be in. Nobody listening to Jesus who heard poor in spirit would have thought that is a good state or position to be in. But this is what the Beatitudes seem to suggest. And as a follower of Christ, I have dedicated myself to following his teachings. So I chalked this particular teaching up to one of those like suffering. 
And this makes sense to a degree. We as Christians can rejoice when we suffer persecution for the sake of Christ, for this is the example that Christ himself displayed. And through our suffering, we demonstrate the power of Christ on the cross. So I figured that we as Christians should strive to become poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted, for this is the way of Christ. And this is exactly what many Christians believe. But because we can't possibly imagine or figure out how to reasonably implement some of them, we work to figure out what Jesus really could have been saying here. And again, this is difficult because there are so many on the list we have no problem getting behind. Pure in heart? No problem. Keep the law and uh, don't lust. Seek God first and foremost and be a peacemaker? I can do that. But meek? We usually get around this one by saying it means like having strength and yet not using it. So if you happen to be a strong person, Jesus isn't excluding you from inheriting the earth here. It's just that you need to learn how to control your strength or not use it or use it for the benefit of others who don't have it. Blessed are those who mourn. Who wants to mourn? I guess we'll be comforted, but why seek a state of mourning just so you'll be comforted? I would rather not need that blessing by simply avoiding the original state of mourning in the first place. Now, of course, it's encouraging to know that uh, it's there should I need it, but I would rather avoid the problem from the beginning. And this was my problem with the Beatitudes. There doesn't seem to be a consistent pattern in how we should approach them or apply them to our lives. Should we seek to embody these original states of being, or should we simply take solace knowing that if we do find ourselves on the list— We will be blessed because of it. But a little over a year ago, I actually sat down to read. Actually, I listened to the audiobook of Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And I walked away having been converted. Dallas Willard writes, It will help us know what to do and what not to do with the Beatitudes if we can discover what Jesus himself was doing with them. That should be the key to understanding them. For after all, they are his beatitudes, not ours to make of them what we will. And since great teachers and leaders always have a coherent message that they develop in an orderly way, we should assume that this is a clarification of the primary point of his talk and in his life, the availability of the kingdom of the heavens. Willard goes on to discuss the context in which the Sermon on the Mount is set. In chapter 4, right before he begins teaching them on the Sermon on the Mount, The Bible says, And he went up throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This leads Willard to write, I believe he, being Jesus, used the method of show and tell to make clear the extent to which the kingdom is on hand to us. There were directly before him those who had just received from the heavens through him. The context makes this clear. He could point out in the crowd now this individual who was blessed because the kingdom among us had just reached out and touched them with Jesus' heart 
and voice and hands. Perhaps this is why in the Gospels we only find him giving beatitudes from the midst of a crowd of people he had touched. And so he said, Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. Or, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, of course, is the more traditional and literal correct translation of Matthew 5.3. The poor in spirit are blessed as a result of the kingdom of God being available to them in their spiritual poverty. Those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in a meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, the rule of heaven has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. And that's what did it for me. The good news is that in spite of our broken and sinful condition, the kingdom of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. We don't have to measure up, strive harder, be rich, powerful, or famous in order to be blessed. We are all equally blessed because the kingdom of God is at hand. It began its entrance with Jesus, and it continues breaking into this world even now through his body, the church. As another writer put it, Those who are in these conditions, the poor in spirit, those who are so lowly, so mistreated, so marginalized that they must rely on God for their next day of life. So here's the good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those people who have to rely on God for each and every single day of their life because they have nothing at all to sustain them. They are recipients of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, those people who have had the things that they love most dear to them, stripped away, loved ones, because they will be comforted because now Jesus Christ comes and is in their midst. Blessed are the meek, those people who may or may not have strength but choose not to use it, those people who couldn't use the strength even if they wanted to, for they will inherit the earth, the thing that nobody except for the strong normally gets to inherit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those people who go out of their way, who desire to do good, who want to measure up to God's good standards, but continually feel like they're failures or they're falling short of the great mercy and grace that he has bestowed on us. They are blessed because they will be satisfied through Jesus Christ himself. Blessed are the merciful, those people who go out of their way and, and, and give more of themselves to others and allow people to skate by on things that really might be unjust. They will receive mercy because Christ comes and forgives their sins as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, those people who are just perfectly innocent, who strive to live up to the law and want to do good and everything they can, they will see God. The only person who Jesus says is truly good. The pure in heart will receive their reward. Blessed are the peacemakers, these people that go out of their way to take no position in particular and therefore are hated on both sides of the aisle. These peacemakers will be called sons of God, for that's exactly what Jesus came to do, is to bring us peace, and they killed him for it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the goal of everything that Christ comes to teach us and to reveal to us. 
the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you are persecuted on behalf of it, you in fact will be a recipient of it. The Beatitudes flip upside down and reveal the way in which the world and its thinking is messed up. The world says that only those who are rich, strong, and powerful are the ones who are blessed, no matter how they got that power, status, or money. But Jesus comes in with the Beatitudes and declares, those who strive in vain to do what is right are really the ones who are blessed because they, conversely to the world's way of thinking, will receive the kingdom of God. Well, if these are the kinds of people who the kingdom of God come to, then what does it mean for the way the world thinks, our natural way of thinking? It means it's fundamentally flawed. Therefore, when we enter into this kingdom as new citizen participants, we must learn a new way to think and act. Otherwise, we will find ourselves falling back into old patterns and old ways of thinking that have brought about this sin and suffering from which we are so desperately trying to escape. We as humans inherently are searching for the good life, a life of peaceful flourishing where we feel whole and fulfilled in all that we do. But it's in these feelings, these, these passions of ourselves that often give way to sin if we're not careful to think about them in the way Christ is describing life in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes of Jesus reveal that there is something wrong in the world. Our way of thinking has been turned upside down, and the kingdom of God is going to fix it, to set it right. I think that once we have accepted the Beatitudes as states of being that are redeemed by Christ who ushers in the kingdom of God, we are then free to pursue these states with the intention of becoming more like Christ. And this is what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount aims to teach us. Jesus was by no means poor in spirit, but he did rely on his father, God, to provide for everything that he had in his life. Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into detail about everything uh, that I want to talk about in this next section, but I think there's something valuable here in what James K.A. Smith's work points out as far as uh, the way we build habits into our everyday lives to cultivate specific desires for the kingdom of God. Now, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, this may sound familiar because several guests have brought up points based on Smith's work. Basically, he debunks this idea that we are primarily thinking things. We, in our Western philosophical way of thinking, like to think of ourselves first and foremost as brains walking around in these bodies. Think of Descartes' I think, therefore I am. But Smith's work suggests that, in fact, we are primarily desiring beings first. We don't do the things we think about. We do the things we desire to do the most. And to illustrate this, think about those times when you blatantly sin. What's driving you to actually sin in those moments? Is it ignorance? Is it because you think that it isn't a sin? Why, why do you tell a lie when you tell a lie? Is it because you think it's right? I would suggest to you it's because in that moment, you desire the quick and easy consequences that the lie would give you. You're thinking solely about your own needs and desires and passions in that moment, more than you're thinking about the relationship and what that might do between you and the person you're lying to or what consequences that may cause to those around you that might also get caught up 
in this lie. Gossiping is the same way. You value the approval and the feeling of self-importance from the other person that you're about to gossip to more than you value your relationship or the, uh, the integrity of the person you're getting ready to talk about. Our desires are the things that drive us primarily forward. And so this is the key, I think, to living out a life of the Beatitudes and implementing what Jesus is talking about when he presents the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a new law. It's not a replacement of the law of the Old Testament. Jesus is simply coming and telling us how to go about living out this good law of God. And the key is, I think, our desires— Again, think about it. Jesus comes along and he puts up the thing that people had heard about the most. You have heard it said, don't murder. But I say, even if you look at someone with ill intent, you have committed murder in your heart. Jesus is addressing our desires. So the question becomes, how do we change our desires so that walking and living in this new kingdom reality is a natural part of our life, a lifestyle of discipleship? Well, Smith suggests that it's about implementing liturgies and habits into our life that slowly change our desires over time. And I think this has been really important for my life over the last few years of learning to live a lifestyle of discipleship. When we take our discipleship out of the margins of our day, the beginnings or the ends, when we primarily think about those quiet time moments and do those devotionals, again, think back to my story when I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning. I was being intentional about spending time with Jesus, but what did I do with my relationship with Christ throughout the rest of the day? And that has become an essential component of my life now. When I go throughout the day walking with Christ and I begin to notice the little things or uh, moments happen and I think about and I stop and ask, "What, what am I desiring right here in this moment? You can interrupt that primal urge that you have, that that normal sinful desire, and instead insert some of your thought and say, that's not really what I desire. I want to desire the things of God. And then you can make a decision that that leads you on a path to more godliness. I often think of the example that Father Albert gave when he was on the podcast of Think, Look, and Listen. When he told the story of a young man who was trying to overcome the temptation to look at pornography, and he had sort of fallen into a a pattern of habit. If he'd come home from work and he would immediately feel the urge to go to his computer and, and look at porn, but instead he broke that pattern by walking in, and as soon as he felt that trigger, he would stop, he would look around for God's presence, and he would listen to what he should be doing instead. And it slowly, over time, his desires began to change. Eventually, you're going to find yourself in that situation, and because you've overridden that habit pattern in your brain and your desires have changed, that once sinful desire and habit will give way to a new habit that will embody more of Christ-likeness. Here's the good news. This life, a lifestyle of discipleship, is 100% available to each of us, no matter the condition you find yourself in today. Right now, you don't have to worry about measuring up and getting it all right. Accept the good news. Rest in it. Let it change you as it changes your desires. Forget the way of the world that says you have to measure up. You have to be a certain way and embrace the way of Jesus that 
offers hope to those who have none. So I'll ask you again, how many times have you been converted? The good news is you can have more than one answer. And I hope you will continue to have encounters with Jesus and the Holy Spirit that transform you evermore into his likeness. But today, the change I hope you take away from this video is the same change that took place in me when I first realized what these Beatitudes were really calling me to. Overwhelming joy and gratitude. Hearing that no matter what our state or position is in this life, that we have equal access to the promises of the kingdom of God, that should cause us to rejoice. And so even though I don't feel like I should be able to sit here and teach you about a lifestyle of discipleship or I feel like a fraud. I know that I am blessed because Jesus Christ has done a work in me. I want you to know that the blessings associated with the gospel aren't a set of standards that one has to measure up to in order to receive. We should be filled with hope and joy that the gospel comes to us even when we're not worthy. And that, I think, is good news. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Chris and his work, check out dailygrowthdiscipleship.com. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.